Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to be today. We are continuing in our series, He, She, His. The last couple of weeks, we've been introduced to this series. And then last week, John got us kicked off on the masculinity part. So we're spending three weeks on men, and then we're going to spend three weeks on women. And then we are going to move on to the book of Ephesians. So that's how that works today. As I'm looking at Matthew chapter 1, I find a story of a guy that most of the time gets unnoticed in the birth narrative of Jesus, it's the stepfather of Jesus. It's the guy that most of the time we just hurry up and get by because we want to get to angels, a manger, no room in the inn, that kind of stuff, right? And so today as I read this, I want us to have in our mind this idea of what is authentic biblical masculinity. I'm going to take off reading Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. It said, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. I want to stop there and just make sure we're all on the same page. It's probably a familiar passage to a lot of us. What's happened is, is that Mary and Joseph are engaged to be married. That looks a little different in the ancient Near East than it does today. Essentially, they were living as a married couple, except they had not consummated the marriage physically or sexually. And so as a result, there's a little bit of a different custom deal. But for the most part, they would be engaged, living as married without the consummation of it. And so that's the reason for the word divorce here. So before they have consummated the marriage, here is Mary who shows up pregnant. And when she shows up pregnant, we've got Joseph who's just jumping to the ideal conclusion, which is Mary's been stepping out on him, right? There's an affair, there's infidelity. You can tell by the reading of this passage that Joseph has no idea what has taken place miraculously by the Holy Spirit in Mary, in her womb. And so he just says, you know what? I'm not in for this. This isn't the way I drew it up. This isn't what I'm looking for. I'm going to divorce her, but I'm going to do it quietly. I don't want to put her to shame. The reason that's important, because if you were caught in an affair, then those parties could be stoned. And if he does this publicly, then there's a good chance Mary's going to lose her life. This is a 13, 14-year-old girl, pregnant, going to be by herself, incredibly vulnerable. This is, this is not a good situation, right? So he says, hey, I'm going to do it privately. We don't need capital punishment involved. I think he does it privately probably because he doesn't want to undergo the shame of thinking, you know what, this, everybody's going to know that she cheated on me, and that's embarrassing to me, and it's embarrassing to her. And so he's just like, let's just... Let's just do it privately. So what happens next? Verse 20. But after he had considered these things, and I can imagine Joseph spending some time at night. He's considering them. He's, you all can imagine what this would be like. Probably on his best day, he's like, you know what? I'm going to marry her. I'm going to marry her no matter what. I love her. And then on his worst days, he's like, man, have her stone. Just this emotional roller coaster. I can imagine all of that. And then he has a dream. 
says, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That's what we're doing here. I know you're thinking about it. I know you're wanting to divorce her and I know you're going to do it calmly and quietly and you're going to do it in a respectful way. But here's the deal. I don't want you to do that. I want you to take her as your wife. Marry her. That's what the angel of the Lord said. He's fixing to give four reasons why. Four reasons why. Let's take a look at him. It says, don't be afraid to marry her. Middle of verse 20. And then he says, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She's not been cheating on you. She hasn't stepped out on you. There's no affair involved here. This is what's happened. It is a miracle of God. Matter of fact, the third person of the Godhead is the reason why she is expecting a child. That's pretty big news, isn't it? I mean, she is, he's listening to this and saying, okay, it's not that there's infidelity. It is that God has done something miraculous here. That's the first one. Then he goes on and he says this in verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If the first one wasn't enough that, hey, she hasn't had an affair and the third member of the Trinity is the one who's responsible for her pregnancy, the the person inside of her is going to save humanity from their sins. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's a big deal. What a dream, right? Some of you think you dream weird. This one's a dream. And so when we think about all of the stuff that we do wrong, lie, cheat, steal, all of that, The baby in Mary's womb is going to take care of it. Crazy. That's second reason you shouldn't be afraid to marry her. Then he goes on, verse 22. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And he's going to quote the prophet Isaiah. Verse 23, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Third thing, this is another reason don't be afraid. We've been promising this guy for thousands of years. Israel's been waiting on the Messiah. This baby is it. And then last but not least, if this wasn't enough, he's going to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's not just any child. It's the God man. Now, I just want us to all sit under this for a second. For most of us, you've grown up in church. You're like, yeah, 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 we got it. Born, conceived of the Holy Spirit. We got it, going to take away the sins of the world, been promised forever, and he's going to be God with us. But do you understand the responsibility here? Can you feel the weight of Joseph saying, I am fixing to be the stepfather for that child. I am fixing to step into this child's life. Listen, I got five kids. I'm probably going to ruin one or two of them, right? I don't know what I'm doing. Can you imagine being responsible for Jesus? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine taking the responsibility to raise the Messiah? That is a massive responsibility, which we set up front as this. The core calling of every man, the core calling of every man is to take responsibility. That's the core calling. Core calling of every man is to take responsibility. And this one here is a gigantic responsibility. Now, this was modeled for us way back in Genesis 1 and 2. John mentioned it over the last couple of weeks. The responsibility laid upon Adam. 
So I just, I know, we, we hear this stuff. I just want you to just think about it just for a minute. Genesis chapter 1, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is what he does. He says, let there be light. And day one, he takes day and night and he creates time. And then day two, he separates the water. So there's an atmosphere and there are the seas. He does this. He just says it. Day three, the seas separate from the land. And then there's a bonus that there's plants that start growing on the land. Day four, God decides to put the sun and moon and stars up into that day and night, which is crazy. He created light, but the sun wasn't there yet. That's nuts, isn't it? So he does that. Then on day five, he says, let's populate the air and let's populate the seas with flying birds and swimming fish. And then day six, he says, let's populate the land with beasts of the field. And then the climax of creation, he creates man. And then we get all the way over there to Genesis 2.15. I just want you to listen to these words. Listen to the responsibility. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. God just created the heavens and the earth, said it was good. It's the perfect place. And then says, Adam, have at it. Good luck. You're responsible. Anybody else want to sign up for that gig? I mean, what do you say when God says that? You're like, okay. I mean, what do you do? This is responsibility. That's what this is. The core calling of a man from the very beginning is to take responsibility for what has been entrusted to him. To take responsibility for what's entrusted to him. So for us, we, we think about how do we do this and how is Joseph going to do it? We'll go back over there to to Matthew chapter 1. We'll finish the story. He just finds out that, that this Jesus is going to take the sins of the world. He's, he's the conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's been promised forever. He is God with us. And then verse 24, when Jesus, Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Wakes up says, I'm in. He says, I am going to take responsibility for what God is entrusting to me, no matter how big, how crazy, how fantastic, how massive it is. Our definition of a man, which John brought up last week, is this. It is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. The glad, the joyful assumption, the taking on of sacrificial responsibility. And that's exactly what Joseph does here. You're looking for a guy who models it, he models it. He doesn't question it, he doesn't fight it. He gladly says, I am taking on Mary. I am going to marry her and I am going to take on this child and I am sacrificially going to be responsible. He's like, this is not how I drew it up. This isn't the way I wanted this to go. This isn't how I dreamed up my family to be. But he's going to give that up so that he can take responsibility for what's entrusted to him. Now, if the core calling of every man is to take responsibility for what's entrusted to you, there's a core temptation for every man. And the core temptation is to be passive, to shirk responsibility, 
to say, I've been entrusted with this. I'm responsible for this, but I don't want to. I sleep back into the background. That's what we do. Matter of fact, I think that's what Joseph was wrestling with in the first few chapters, isn't it? I mean, the first few verses is he sits back and says, I don't want to. I'm just going to put her away silently. I don't want to make this a big deal. He's wrestling with, do I take responsibility or not? And at first he's thinking, I'm going to be passive. And that passive approach goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's that serpent trying to talk Eve and trying to talk Adam into it. And let me read uh, chapter 3, verse 6 out of Genesis, because I want you to see the passivity here of Adam when it says this. After the, the snake has done his best argument, says, then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And then here's the key. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, who had been given responsibility to tend and to guard and to protect the garden. Adam. And who is sitting there passively listening to a serpent deceive Eve and himself? It's core responsibility. Core, core calling is responsibility. Core temptation is passivity. We see it all over our world as men are constantly just thinking, I don't want to step into this. It's not my business. I don't know what to say. That somebody else will figure it out. We just constantly go back into the background. So how do we take responsibility? Here at Radius, we use these words, three Ps, provide, protect, pursue. Last week, John talked about provision. He talked about the idea that we as men take responsibility by providing, by working, by, by, by doing those things. We provide physically, hopefully we provide spiritually, we provide mentally, we, we provide emotionally, that we take on this responsibility for what's been entrusted to us and we try to provide. The second thing that we look at is protection. And that protection is also has a physical piece of it. But I, I want to just stop right here because when I'm reading this, I'm a little confused on the protection and the provision piece, if I'm really honest with you. I mean, why does God go to such great lengths to get Joseph to marry Mary? Why? I mean, is it like God is trying to protect the nuclear family because he wants the birth of Jesus to be nice and tidy with a husband and a wife who are happily married? Is that what he's doing? I don't think so. We've read the Bible, right? There are plenty of messed up stories about families in Scripture. I don't think God is trying to protect the nuclear family. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, a lot of times a wreck. David and Bathsheba, a wreck. Judah and Tamar, the list goes on. Is everybody with me on this? I don't think he's trying to protect the nuclear family. I think they, don't think that's the issue. I do think he wants Joseph to provide and to protect Mary. But again, I got another question here. How are you going to provide for Jesus, the ultimate provider? I mean, how are you going to do that? I mean, we're talking about a guy who can look at thousands of people and see they need food and break five loaves and two fish and feed thousands of people, and he did it twice. I'm not really sure there's a whole lot of providing for Jesus that needs to be taken care of here, right? I mean, this is the guy whose very first miracle was a providing miracle, water into wine, 
the ultimate provider in Jesus Christ is that he provided a way for us to spend eternity with God through his death, burial, and resurrection. What really is Joseph going to provide? Really? And then I think about protection. I'm pretty sure Jesus can handle himself, right? I mean, this is the guy who stood on a boat when the wind and the waves were going crazy, and he sits back and holds his hands out and says, peace be still, and they say, even the wind and the waves obey him. Protector. When the sword started flying at the end of his life in the final hours before he is crucified and a guy's ear gets cut off, Jesus protects and puts that rascal back on. I'm not real sure Jesus is in much need of protection. I haven't even mentioned Revelation when he comes riding in on a white horse and a sword in his mouth and a tat on his leg. I think Jesus is going to be fine, don't you? I think he's going to be fine. So when I sit back and I read this, I'm like, what is he doing? Why is God going to such great lengths? Now, let me be clear. I do think that there is a physical piece to this. I do think there is a physical piece. I do not want to downplay the fact that Mary, being 13, 14 years old, an unwed, pregnant mother, she would have been incredibly vulnerable. She would have been vulnerable today. She sure would have been vulnerable 2,000 years ago. Incredibly vulnerable. Incredibly. I think that protection and that provision that Joseph is going to apply is going to have some of that to it. The minute he marries her, she is going to be provided for and protected in a way like no other. Just because a man is willing to put his name and put himself beside her. And I do believe that men are called to protect physically the vulnerable. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that's the reason why men look different than women. I believe that's the reason we're a little bit taller and a little bit bigger and a little bit faster and a little bit stronger. I know I'm not the model of it up here, but I think that's typically the case, right? Generally speaking, we have testosterone coursing through our veins and women have estrogen coursing through theirs. And I'm really glad for that difference. And I am glad that when I look, it is an honor to protect physically and to pick up heavy things and to do those kind of things. I, I think that is absolutely a part of it. And Joseph is going to do that for Mary. Matter of fact, he's going to do it two times. When Herod loses his mind because he doesn't want to hear about this king of the Jews and he does infanticide and kills all the kids Two boys two years and older, what's Joseph going to do? He's going to saddle up and let's go to Egypt. He's going to protect physically. And then when it's time to come back, there's another bad king. And Joseph's going to say, no, 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 we're going to Galilee. He's going to protect physically. And I believe that's a part of something we as men should do. I think it's in us. Let me tell you a story about some of the things that we celebrate when men rise to the occasion and protect this way. Several years ago, I'm at a late night church meeting. I'm, I'm, we're, we're discussing stuff for the church and my wife and kids, Terry, and we have, I have five kiddos. And at the time, my oldest was playing a basketball game, a rec league basketball game. I was wanting to be there, couldn't make it. And so um, Terry's giving me the updates, right? She's texting me, you know, all the stuff. And, and uh, she's got the other four kids with her who at the time, my twins would have been in first grade. I had a daughter in fourth grade, and then I had a sixth grade son who wasn't playing. They were all in the bleachers. So I'm getting texts from Terry that tells me what's going on. And then at some point she says, things are getting out of control. 
Like, what do you mean get out of control, right? I'm getting all of this through her. At some point, I step out, and I take the phone call, and she says there was a little tussle that happened, right? A little tussle. Somebody gets fouled, and it gets a little too far. And the, anyway, they start pushing and shoving some players, and the referee ejects one of the players. Ejects him and says, get out of the gym. So, you know, the guy gets out of the gym. The hard part is, is the kid that got ejected, his dad was the coach, and so he couldn't let it go. And you kind of see where this is going, right? I mean, words are starting to get thrown out, and you think the thing's just about settled in, but the tension's pretty high. But the kid who got asked to leave the gym, he comes running in the gym, and he starts a fight. And soon as that happened, the bleachers clear and people are shoving and pushing and swinging. This is rec league basketball. <laughs> what? I mean, I, th- I think I ought to be able to send my wife to a gym and watch a basketball game and be safe, right? I mean, who knew? So she is, she's beside herself. I'm sitting back. I'm 30 minutes away. By the time I get there, the whole thing's going to be done. I feel helpless. I'm, I'm a little mad because I want to be there. And I'm just envisioning the gym. And I'm like, here, I'm pretty sure there's a door back left. Hit that thing and get out. Well, there wasn't a door. You have to go out where all this crowd is going. So she's got to go across the gym where everybody is. There's a melee happening, right? She's got to go get my son. But she's got first grade twins a fourth-grade daughter, and then a sixth-grade son. Apparently, my wife is feeling it because when I got home, she was still shaky from this experience, like, what in the world? My sixth-grade son, no kidding, because she's telling me what happened. He grabs the twins and my daughter, puts them behind her, and makes sure they get out. When Terry tells me that, I'm like, let's go. (laughs) Right? Let's go. That's what I'm talking about. I'm like, man, I didn't even know I had it in him. (laughs) But we celebrate that because we think that's what a man ought to do, right? And I'm looking at a bunch of men who didn't do what they were supposed to do. We're fighting over a rec league basketball game. There's no playoffs. There's no nothing. There's nothing. Somebody get out there and say, fellas, time out. Get back in the stands. There's nothing to see here. Let's just play the game. No man would stand up. No one. So I I sit back and I'm like, yes, there is protection. And Mary is going to benefit from somebody seeing that trip to Bethlehem and making sure the innkeeper is talked to and making sure the manger is set, putting it in its bike. He's going to do some of that, right? But I don't think that's the primary way. Before I move on from there, Um, the part for me that is the weirdest about all of this, I'm not even really sure how to process it, to be really honest with you. Like I get up here and, and I talk about protecting like a man protecting and, and a lot of us are like, yeah, but then there's this weird part for me that when you look at the statistics, like the statistics say that men are abusive and men are, I mean, they just just dropping the ball here. I, I won't get into all of them, but stats say one in three women have been abused some way, shape, or form by a man. 
So I get up here and I'm talking about protection and you're like, where was one when I needed it? For that, I'm sorry. It just stinks. It just stinks that we abuse our size and position instead of protecting the vulnerable. So I'm a little mixed emotions up here on this, trying to figure out how does this work. But it would be really cool if the church raised up men who would take that responsibility for what's been entrusted to them and live godly, Christ-honoring, sacrificial, responsible lives, wouldn't it? So so what happens here? Um, If you say, Russell, if it's not physical protection, that's the main reason, what is it? I think that this is less about all the physical and it's more about the emotional and the spiritual and the, and the mental part of it. I think God knows that Mary needs a man's presence. And she is going to be protected, not because he can pick up heavy things and make sure they get to Bethlehem safely. I think she needs his presence more than any of the other things. When I say presence, I mean the presence to have a conversation, the presence in crisis, the presence in celebration, the presence in the mundane, the the presence to to be in all of those things. I mean, just again, 13-year-old girl finds out she's pregnant with the Messiah and she's having to hold this secret. I mean, she talked to Elizabeth, but she's holding this secret. Let me ask you this. Joseph wakes up from his dream. He realizes what's in front of him. He goes over to Mary's house. They sit across the table from each other, and he goes, um, I'm not going to divorce you. And um, I know you're carrying the Messiah, and I'm in. You tell me what that conversation's like. I think Mary does this. Man. Don't you think? I don't think she's really worried about Joseph protecting her physically. I think she's worried about Joseph protecting her emotionally and being present. Being present. This idea that we would be present with folks. And let me be clear. I don't think just because you're present means you're there. I think you have to be fully there. You have to be fully present where you and what you've been entrusted with. So go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Remember, we've got, we've got Adam being there when the serpent is saying all of this. He was physically present, but he wasn't present. I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he was thinking while this serpent is saying everything counter to God's word. I don't know what's going through his mind. I don't know if he's glazed over, zoned out, thinking about who Clemson plays next or where we hunting next week or what's on the TV. I don't know what he's got going, but whatever it is, he ain't there. He's there, but he's not there. If you're going to be there, we need to be fully there. If we're going to protect, we have to be fully there. I couldn't protect my wife in that gym because I wasn't there. And I won't be able to protect her if I'm not there. If I'm not there for her emotionally, I won't be able to protect her. 
If I'm not there intellectually, I won't be able to protect her. If I'm not there spiritually, I won't be able to protect her. This thing is about primarily being there, being fully there. Let me give you a few ways on how this pans out for me and my household, and then and we'll go. Um, when I think about it, I, I think about what this looks like for me as where I live, where I work, and where I play. Um, I mean, I, I think about when I come home and I have a conversation with my wife, what does this look like for me to actually listen to her? Guys, I know no one else struggles with this, but like, what does it look like to listen? To be there, fully there. What does it look like to, to be present with your, your children, like fully there. I mean, for Radius, we, we say that a keystone habit in the life of a family is that they, they ought to at least eat a meal together once a week. Like the TV's off, the phones are put away, that we just kind of once a week all get eye to eye with each other and say, we are here, we're fully here. What's going on? How's life? What, what do you see? Because here's the deal. I can't protect my kids if I don't know where they are and I'm not with them. If I'm not fully there, if I'm not fully there and I don't know what's going on a phone or what's happening with their friends or what they're watching, I can't protect it because if you're not there, you can't protect it. No way. Um, I, I think about this at, at, with my wife. Like, I, I wish with five kids and all the activities we do, I wish I could just sit back and say, man, we do date nights all the time, but we can't make that happen. But what I do is I say, hey, during the week, at some point, one of those lunches is just me and you. And I'd rather do something more fun than go to a lunch, but I'm going to tell you, man, it is for us the opportunity to say, man, I'm fully here with you. I go to Circle K every morning nearly, right? Nearly every morning I'm the Sip and Save Club. Uh, I get the coffee, type in my number, and it's a, great, it's a glorious thing. You're not on Sip and Save, you need to get it. It's great. This is me. I'm just telling you me. You, you tell me if I'm crazy or not, but this is me. I, 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 most of the time it's pretty early. Nobody else is in Circle K except a few folks. And when I shut my car off and I open the door, I got to start thinking, because my tendency is, is to walk in Circle K, get my coffee, pay for it, and walk out and be there but not be there. That's my tendency. And I have to think on my walk from here to the door, I have to be thinking, I wonder if Douglas is behind the counter and am I going to call him by name? I wonder if the lady that had a child not so long ago whose name is Britt Am I going to ask, how's Britt doing? Or am I just going to get my coffee, move on, and be done? See, I can be there, but I won't be there. I wonder how many of us go to work, and you're there, but you're not there. And this is what you've been responsible. This is what you've been entrusted with. That we would say, man, I know what's happening with a coworker. I know what's happening with my boss because I am fully there. I'm not just there. I'm fully there. I mean, the list goes on for a hundred other ways that we could show that, man, if I am going to protect what's been entrusted to me, wherever you are, be fully there. Be fully there. 
I'm just going out on a limb here, ladies. You tell me. My bet is you are less concerned, less concerned with a golf score, the caliber of rifle, the next promotion, what level video game. My guess is you are more concerned with our, is my husband going to be here and fully here? It's my guess. And I even wonder, like, when we walk in here, are we fully here? Are you fully engaged? Are we fully here? Wherever you are, be all there. Just to show you how much I think this is important to God, remember what, uh, remember what the name Emmanuel means, that the angel of the Lord told Joseph to name the child. Emmanuel means God with us. That's presence. That's his presence. And the very last words that Jesus says in the book of Matthew, he says, go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. And then the final words, he says, remember, I am with you always. If Jesus was the better provider... He is for sure the better protector because he is with us. He is, he's with us and he's fully with us. And that's what we have to do, be fully here. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, man, I confess that it is, it's way easier to say these words than to live these words and I live most of my life distracted and only protecting myself and my rights and protecting what I want instead of um, protecting what's been entrusted to me, where I live and where I work and where I play. And Lord, I want to be fully there with my kids. I want to be fully there with my wife. I want to be fully there in church. I want to be fully there at, at Circle K or at the ball field or wherever. I want to be fully there so that I can see ways that I can step in and protect and to provide. So, Lord, I thank you that you gave us this tremendous, amazing calling to take responsibility and that you've equipped us to reject passivity and that we can take on all that you've entrusted to us. So, Lord, I pray that we would look to your son, Jesus, the ultimate provider, the ultimate protector, the ultimate pursuer, as we take this bread and juice that reminds us of his death, burial, and resurrection. We would sing these songs to him and for him and through him because he was fully here for us. Lord, I pray that we would be fully here for others. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.